Good morning, everyone. Would you please stand? This morning we are coming into the presence of our God. He is always good, and his love is so amazing that it's, it's difficult to understand how, how deep it goes. Let's sing our praises and worship our Lord today. I want to scream it out from every mountain top. Your goodness knows no bounds. Your goodness never stops. Your mercy follows me. Your kindness fills my life. Your love amazes me. And I'll sing. And I'll sing because you are good. And I'll dance because you are good. And I'll shout because you are
Well, good morning, Southfield. It's great to be here together worshiping our God as um, one congregation all together this morning. And we're going to continue in worship. Um, and this morning we're, we're diving into 1 Corinthians 5 again. I think this is our third week on it. Um, but Dennis is going to wrap up some things um, and try to put the pieces together of the things that we've um, been taking apart through that chapter. So it's a good morning to be here. And it's a, it's a great morning to worship God. Here I am before you, falling in love and seeking your truth, knowing that your perfect grace has brought me to this place. Because of you, I freely So I shout. So I 
Father, we thank you, Father, for adopting us as your children. And God, we know that as our creator, you knitted, you knit us together in our mother's wombs, Father. Um, far beyond and before anyone even knew that we would exist, you knew, and you knew us by name. And Lord, you know every part of us. You know every thought that we have, Lord God. And Jesus, we, we hand our lives over to you and our hearts over, and we just lay them down at your feet. God, we ask that um, everything that we are, that we would just hand it over and surrender it to you. Father, this morning we know that First Corinthians is a, is a tough chapter, Lord. Um, and we just ask that, Father, we wouldn't resist what you have to say to us, but we would be open and just absorb everything that you say to us and, and every word that you have for us this morning. So prepare our hearts to receive what you have to say to us today, Lord God, to change us and make us more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, it's great to see you this morning. It is March. Believe it or not, it doesn't feel like it. 70 is just around the corner. Are you excited? Snow will be gone. Sun will be out. It'll be great. We'll have a great time. As you walked in, you received a folder today. Two things on the inside, an offering envelope and then also a card. And you can go ahead and fill this out now. If it's your first time here... Put on as much as you're comfortable filling out. In fact, for you, as you're leaving today, you'll see a table on the way out the door. And uh, there's a book on there by Andy Stanley called How Good is Good Enough? We'd like for you to take one of those as our gift. For everybody else, one of the things I want to show you on the folder this morning, the, the middle announcement. We, we normally don't do recruiting uh, on Sunday morning, that sort of thing. We try to do shoulder tapping and give people the opportunity to try things. But um, looking for people who might be interested in getting involved in our tech team. Tech team is what happens. 
happens over here on the window between words and sound. You might have some aptitude for that or, or desire to learn about it. And we'd, we'd love for you to be able to try that out. Now, we promise we wouldn't have you like taking over the whole thing next Sunday or something like that. You'd be trained and receive the training you want. But, but if that's an area that you're thinking, yeah, I, I, I might actually be uh, interested in serving there. You can actually on the back side of your card in the little box off to the right, the bottom one says tech team. Check that off. We'll contact you and talk about the ways that we might be able to get you involved in that area. One of the things we wrote, you know, I don't know why it happens, but it seems like in most churches the tech teams are are guys. But, you know, girls can do tech too. In fact, I suspect, who knows, girls might actually do it better. They do everything else better. So anyway, if if that's an area that you're interested, uh, make sure you let us know about that. If you're here for the first time or the first time in a while, uh, you might not know that we are... We're walking through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the, book, to the church in Corinth. And we've just been taking it uh, a chapter at a time. And in fact, we've been sometimes slowing down even more than that. And just seeing what Paul had to say to that ancient church and how it applies to our times. For the whole study, we have a verse that we're learning. And hey, you know, don't you get too tense? It's funny, we, we get really tense when it comes to memorizing. Oh, I can't memorize, but boy, we can rattle off the stats of our favorite team. How can we do that? Well, because we kind of just absorb it. It's not like we sit down and memorize it, but we absorb it. So we're absorbing this verse together over this season simply by saying it out loud. So if you join me in saying it, start with the word B, say it nice and strong. Be on guard, stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, and do everything with love. Great verse that describes how we're supposed to live um, live our lives in, in a culture that is not always friendly to what is going on in Christianity. So this is now the third week that we are spending time in the fifth chapter of Corinthians. And and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a it's a tough chapter. There's some tough stuff uh, going on going on in the content of that chapter. What we've done is broken it down the the first week we just we looked at the the story itself, the content, what's happening there. Uh, in the church there was a couple, a man and a woman. This man was uh, living in sin with his stepmother. And Paul said, this shouldn't be happening. But he went beyond that to say the issue isn't really that that is happening, but that the church wasn't doing anything about it. They were just, they were just embracing the sin. They were saying, hey, it's no problem. It's no big deal. And so Paul enters in and, and offers some very... Uh, clear, direct commands to say, this is how you need to take care of this, and this is how you need to take care of this now. So that was the first week. The second week, we tried to really set into the, the spirit of the chapter, try to understand uh, what's, what's the tone with which not only this is written, but the tone with which it's supposed to be applied. Because as you look at this chapter, you might, you might get the impression that it's kind of harsh and hateful. It's kind of mean. But if you really understand the tone, there are two things at place, at play. One is the, the, the tone of God's love. The tone of a loving father who says, I love you too much to just allow you to wander off the path. And then on the part of the church, there's a tone of, of love and humility. We looked at that verse in chapter 6 that said, some of you were once like that. 
that we are people who, who have been rescued from sin. So we're not going around pointing fingers and judging other people. We're trying to help pull people out of the pit as well. We're trying to help pe- people get on the right path. So, so this is all approached with a spirit of love, a spirit of humility, a spirit where we're really trying to do our best uh, to help people come back into their walk with God. Now, after two weeks of this chapter, I feel a little bit like we're at a high school and we're at auto shop. And we've taken apart a car. We've taken apart every last piece. And it's scattered all over the floor. There's the oil filter right over there. I mean, there, there are parts everywhere. And we've looked at the parts. We've seen the parts. But now it's time to take some of the parts that are a little confusing, figure out finally what they're about, and get this thing back together because we've got to drive to chapter 6. We, you know, we don't want to stay here till July. So what we're going to do today is look at kind of some of the random pieces that we haven't covered yet and try to understand them, and then try to bring the whole chapter together and say, okay, so how do you live this out in modern times? What does it look like now? Before we go there, you know, I've already acknowledged, and Dana did as well, that this chapter's got some heaviness to it. So we could use a little comic relief. We could use a reason to smile. And I have a video clip for you that I think will do that, but it's not purposeless. It's not just for the grin. There's actually a reason behind it. Here we go. And this is the honker. That's the key. And there is the wheel to drive the car. This is where you put your foot to get it moving. You mean the pedal? Yes. (laughs) What does this one do? That one opens the top. Watch. See, it opens the top. I can see the sky. (laughs) So, that's mostly all. What do you do if it rains? The phone? If it rains and you're driving. What rings? If if it rains, (laughs) what rings? I said rain. Rain? Then we would close the windows. And what would you do if it was sunny after it rained? We could open the windows. But would the car be dirty? What? Would the car be dirty? What? (laughs) So... How do you turn on the car? You have to push a button on the car, but I don't know which button. I don't remember what it looks like. You don't? Then how do you turn it on when you don't remember what it looks like? Um... Shelly's been walking around the house all, all week long. Would the cow be dirty? Would the cow be dirty? Uh, you know, here's, here's where I am with this video. Sometimes I feel like the Apostle Paul is saying, what would you do if it wanes? And I'm going, what did you just say? Did you just say rings? Did you just say rains? I'm not totally understanding what you're saying. There, sometimes there's a disconnect when we read the Bible. Why? Well, for one thing, it's a 2,000-year-old book. 
It's been around for a while. And some of the context is different than the modern context. So we're reading this chapter and we're trying to understand what it says. And we're hearing the words, but, but we may not always be hearing them correctly. So we, we have to take the time to understand what exactly is Paul saying? How do we live this out today? Now, the way we're going to deal with this, I have like seven different topics that we need to hit in kind of rapid succession. And I realize when you say seven and you put time to that, I've got about three minutes per topic. So we're just going to hit these and move through them rather quickly. But hopefully by the end, we will look, have looked at all the pieces on the floor and figured this out. In chapter 5, we began with, with verses 1 and 2, of course, which described the situation. And he ends that part of the chapter by saying, or that, those verses by saying, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. The first issue, you might call it then and now. What was happening then, and what does that look like now? He says you should remove this man from your fellowship. And really, when you look at that passage, one of the key words is fellowship. When we look at the church back then, it is very different than the context in which we meet today. Back then, the church met in a house. Most scholars believe that it was composed of about 30 to 50 people. Nowadays, what do we do? We rent a facility or we build a facility and we go to a place we call church, a building we call church. Some of those churches in our country literally have 20 and 30,000 people that are a part of that church. Little bit different than what was going on in the time of Corinth. So you may look at that and say, okay, so how do you apply what's happening in 1 Corinthians? Little more obvious to see how you apply it when you're meeting in a house with 30 friends. But what do you do when you're in a, a public setting where people might treat church a little bit more like they come, they're part of what's seen, they watch what's going on, they may participate by singing and listening, and they leave, but they, they haven't made a relational connection. The key to the passage is in understanding the word fellowship, that it's a relational connection. Church is about making that kind of a connection with each other. There are other things that are different than their time. Not only the size, but the structure of the church, the style of church. How about this issue of spiritual authority? I mean, you had an apostle who was giving this declaration. In our times, we're not big on authority. We're the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of the 60s. We don't like anybody telling us what to do, whether it's somebody uh, above us or somebody next to us. We don't like to have someone holding that kind of authority in our lives. So how do we apply this when now is a little bit different than back then? You see, when it comes down to it, The church back then was not just attending a service. For a lot of people, they will attend a service and they say, I've gone to church. Church in Paul's time was about doing life together. It was about a relationship where you were really connected in such a way that you had proximity, you were close to other people, and you had permission to get involved in their lives. So we have that difference at play play in our times Church is not just a place to attend. Now, I realize when when you're first coming, you come the first few Sundays, you're not going to just hang out and linger. But, you know, if you've been a part of a church for years, there should come a point that you're moving beyond just coming and watching, observing and singing, and actually starting to move into relationship with other people. That's God's intention for us in this concept of fellowship. 
There's a verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. If you're going to sharpen a knife, you need to get out that sharpener that's made of something as strong or maybe even stronger than the knife itself. I've never had the experience that I've run my knife through butter and had the knife come out stronger. We need that sharpening on something else that is sharp as well, that is hard as well. And that's what the relationships in church are supposed to be about. We're the kind of fellowship that we are, that we're sharpening each other. We're helping each other to grow, to be much more like Jesus. And I I guess I just have to ask you the question, is that what you want? Is that what you're seeking from a church? Because whether or not that's what you're seeking, that's what God intends for us. God intends for us to enter into that kind of fellowship that kind of relationship where we have loving relationships with other people that challenge us and we can challenge them to grow to be more like Jesus. If you look at that passage again, verses 1 and 2, one of the other things that we learn from this this text is that uh, sin matters. It really matters. I think in our times, we view sin as, you know, no big deal. Most people look at it and they say, you know, it's a mistake, an indiscretion, a youthful indiscretion, something I did way back then. You can't look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and say, sin is no big deal. We need to realize that there's some real heaviness to it. Now, he refers right here, at least in this part, to, to the sexual sin, the act of incest that was taking place. But if you go further in the chapter, he talks about other sins as well. He talks about greed. He talks about cheating people. He talks about idolatry, which maybe you don't have a little statue, but some of us have an idolatrous relationship with our money or with our job or something else. So he talks about these other sins. And basically what he's saying is sin is serious and God wants us to move toward getting that junk out of our lives. Now, there's some things we need to understand about the sin going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First of all, it was a state of rebellion. This rebellion was basically saying, I know what God wants, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I don't know that we'd ever be that overt. If we'd actually ever just outright say, God, I know what you want, but so what? But the fact is, if we've come to that state of rebellion that we know the truth of God's word and we say, so what? I'm going to do what I want. We're kind of we're in a serious state. That's a problem. Further, this was a it was a habitual sin. It's not something that was a one time oops or something like that. This was an ongoing event, an ongoing state. But the third part that we see is that it was unrepentant. These people refused to change course. You know, the word repent is kind of funny. We see it at ball games and whatever on big signs. But repent is a beautiful word. It basically says, I'm going in this direction and I come to a dead stop and make a 180 degree turn. Now I'm going in the opposite direction. And the question is, if we come to the point with the sin in our life that we want to change, the desire to change needs to be there. There's no way that Paul is suggesting here that you should stay away from church until you get everything right. But what he is saying is we should be approaching God with a spirit that says, God, I want to be more like you. I've got junk I'm dealing with and wrestling with in my life, but I want to be more like you. I want to grow like you. So we really do need to, as believers, take sin seriously. And I would say this, we're pretty good at taking other people's sins seriously. We're pretty good at pointing out what all the world is doing wrong, 
talking about looking in our own hearts. We need to take the offenses we have against God on our own seriously. Now, if you go to verse 3, 3 to 5, this is where Paul laid out the, um, the prescriptive statement of what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to call a meeting in the church. Paul said, I'll be with you in spirit. The spirit of Jesus will be there. You're to cast this man out. You're to hand him over to Satan. And, you know, he gives this very prescriptive uh, list of things that are supposed to happen. And as they look at this part of the passage, and as we've just sat here for several weeks now, this is part of what I've come to realize. This passage is a last resort. It's not a first step. This isn't the first thing you do. This is the very last thing that would happen. Some of you own a PC. If you own a PC, you've learned the magic of Control-Alt-Delete. You need that every once in a while, right? That PC just gets all for... I have a Mac. We never have any problems. But, um, you know, if you have a PC, there are times after it's taken seven minutes to start up that, that your Macs start faster. And you, you, you're frozen. You don't know what else to do. And so you do Control-Alt-Delete. Boom, it clears. And suddenly your, your computer is magically brand new. Everything's perfect once again until two minutes later. Um, now, what happens, it's kind of funny. When people learn the magic of Control-Alt-Delete, they want to use it for everything. They're going to close Microsoft Word, Control-Alt-Delete. They're going to close an email, Control-Alt-Delete. No, you don't have to do that. That's the drastic last step measure. That's not the first resort. That's the very, if you're closing a program, hit the little red X, boom, gone. Next, let's move on. So what you have in 1 Corinthians 5 is a Control-Alt-Delete The church hadn't taken care of business. The church hadn't had the conversations it was supposed to have. And because of that, Paul's having to enter in and say, we have a mess here. This is what we've got to do to get this fixed now. What I would suggest after spending time in this passage is that it would be rare. In fact, it may never happen that a church has to do what's being talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Not because they're ignoring Scripture, but because they're doing everything they need to prior to that so that they never come to this place in the first place. I mean, what's happening here? The church had come to a point of just saying, sin is okay and tolerating it, rather than having spiritual, accountable relationships with each other and helping each other to walk on the right path. So this is a last resort. It's not a first step. Another part of this verse that I want you to see is that part that says, um, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. And it goes on to say, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. That line, hand him over to Satan, sticks in our throats. I mean, I can't imagine suggesting it to someone out loud. What we need to do is hand him over to Satan. Oh. Really? Well, Paul says it. In fact, there's only one other time that it appears in the Bible. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, cling to your faith in Christ. He's talking to Timothy. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. In other words, they've chosen to sin. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan 
so that they might learn not to blaspheme God. When we hear those words, hand them over to Satan. My goodness, it sounds so, it sounds hate-filled, and it sounds harsh. But you even see the ending there. What does he say? So that they might learn. Not so that they are duly punished, they deserve this, but so that they might learn, so that they might come back, come back home to God. Again, this is the only other time it's used in the New Testament. And the idea is to expel someone from the, from the fellowship of the church. Now, if someone's outside of the fellowship of the church, here's the reality. We tend to think of this in a very physical way. Oh, they're not allowed to attend a church service anymore. No, that's not what this is about. This is a spiritual act. When someone is outside of the fellowship of the church, you know where they are? They're in the realm of Satan. We see this in numerous verses in the Bible, 1 John 5, 19 being one of them. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So when a person, you know, when this step is taken, this extreme step, it comes to the point that they are outside of the fellowship of the church. In other words, outside of the protection of Christ that comes when you're a part of a church. What's the purpose of it ultimately? The purpose is to bring the person home to God. That is, again, that is what God desires, that, that we come back home to God. It's absolutely important. Disfellowshipping is not just a physical act. That's not what it's about. It's not saying you can't come here anymore. Disfellowshipping is a way of saying it's time for you to live in the realm of Satan for a while, and hopefully in that realm you will, you will come to your senses. You will understand what's going on. Now, Remember again, I want you to see that verse one more time so you don't miss it. The, the hand him over to Satan stands out so boldly that we miss the other parts so that his sinful nature might be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. The idea behind this type, type of correction, behind this kind of discipline, is not to punish someone. It's to help them to wake up. It's to help them to wake up so that they want to come back home to God. So they want to repent and they want to be restored. And again, the passage says, ultimately, this person will be saved. They'll be saved on the day of the Lord. When we looked at verse 6 and following, we saw this concept. It says, you're boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? And we talked about that concept of yeast and and how that works through dough and it leavens. You can't have part of a batch of dough that is unaffected if yeast is in the dough. And, And Paul is using an analogy like others have used in the Bible of yeast being sin that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough. Now what ends up happening then when people read this verse and then we read other verses like it, they get a concept that the church is supposed to just be absolutely all about purity. If you could have a scale here, purity is the goal. We will only be a church full of people who have finally gotten it right, uh, which means it'll be a really, really, really thin room of self-righteous people, right? So you've got the purity thing over here. The other side of the balance would be outreach, where we're looking at passages like Luke 15 that say, go out into the fields, find the lost sheep, and bring them in. And you kind of got to ask that question, okay, so we're supposed to be focusing on purity, but we're supposed to bring lost people into God. In fact, it's possible that as we've looked at this chapter, you've thought, man, there are people I'd like to invite to church. I can't invite them now. 
I mean, they're, they're doing this 1 Corinthians 5 stuff. I can't invite them until they get their act together. You have to continue to understand, and I believe this with all my heart, that the church is a hospital. A church is an emergency room. A church is a place that you bring people that are bleeding in sin to have a chance to come to know God. That's what the church is all about. There's no question about that. But think about an emergency room for a moment. What if you went to an emergency room five years ago with a broken arm, and today you're still sitting there and your arm is still broken? Something, something failed in that emergency room. Either someone didn't offer you care, or the care was offered and you said, no, I kind of like it this way. See how it dangles? You know, this is cool. I, what? No, I want my arm fixed. Ultimately, when you come to the hospital, when you come to the emergency room, you come because you want to get better. You don't come because you like the mints they have at the desk. You come because you want to get better. You come to church because you want to get better. And granted, we're going to walk in and we're living in a mess. But we want to get better. The desire to get better needs to be there. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not crazy about going to the dentist. It's not my favorite thing. I do not like metal scraping against my teeth. Oh, So anyway, go to the dentist. Let's say I open my mouth really wide. And the dentist looks in and goes, everything looks great. Good to go. See ya. I know you don't like that metal thing, so I'm not going to touch your teeth. I'll leave you alone. And I go home, and after a while, my, my mouth is just really hurting bad. And I go back to the dentist. He said, oh, yeah, you had a ton of cavities, but, but I didn't want to scrape metal on your teeth. I just want, I wanted you to feel comfortable. I wanted you to feel good. I don't know about you. I'd be going, I came to you because I wanted my teeth fixed, not because I wanted you to tell me everything's okay. We come into this fellowship because we want our spiritual junk fixed. Not because we want people to look at us and say, don't worry, everything's okay. Now, again, that happens not with a spirit of judgment, a judgmental spirit, but a spirit of humility. A spirit of humility that says, I was there too. And I want to help you to get on the right path. I want to help you to get where you need to be. Let's look at another piece of this. As you look at verses 9 to 11, he talked about the fact that... um, he had written to them in the past about not, not being around people who indulge in sexual sin. And he said, I'm not talking about unbelievers. If I was talking about unbelievers, you'd have to leave the world. I'm talking about believers. And he goes through a list of sins that believers commit. And then he ends the whole paragraph by saying, don't even eat with such people. Now, you look at that line and you go, what in the world is Paul talking about there? This, again, is one of those things where Paul is saying, what if it wanes? And we're going, what are you saying? Ring? What are you, I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't understand what you're saying. Because we don't understand meals in Eastern culture. We understand meals in Western culture. We understand driving up and saying, I'll have a number one, super size, let's go. And we eat it while we're driving because we got our kid off to practice. Or even when we're eating at home. You know, I'm to the point, I don't really like cooking Thanksgiving dinner. You know why? It takes me about 10 hours to prep that thing, and it takes us about 20 minutes to eat that thing. And I'm like, what are we doing here? This is supposed to be a time that we sit together and relax and enjoy each other. Meals in Eastern culture weren't about food. Meals in Eastern culture were about being together, sharing life together. If I invited you into my tent into my home, if I said, come share a meal with me, it wasn't just because I wanted to share some food with you. It's because I wanted to share life with you. You may remember in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is talking to the seven churches, and he comes to the end and he says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. 
if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Your Western ears go, Jesus wants to eat a hamburger with me? That's weird. I mean, what, what are you talking about? Jesus doesn't care what's being served. Jesus is saying, I just, I want to be part of your life. I want to be part of your life. I want to spend time with you. I want to, I want to be together with you. You see, when it came down to it, people look at this passage and they wonder if it has one of two meanings. Is Paul saying you should never share communion with someone living in sin? Well, the issue there is if Paul's saying kick them out of the fellowship, the communion thing would never come up. Paul's basically saying we shouldn't be inviting that people, those people into the intimate part of our lives. Not because we're afraid we're going to be contaminated and not because we're being mean, but because we're trying to help them to understand the seriousness of what they're doing wrong. First John chapter, or Second John, verse, verse 10. There's only one chapter in the book. It says, if anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, in other words, they're a false teacher, don't invite that person into your home or give them any kind of encouragement. Uh, the bottom line of that is we're help, trying to help a person to understand the seriousness of what we're doing. And if you're a parent, you get it. Because you don't, you don't apply discipline because you're trying to get revenge on your kid. You apply discipline because you're trying to wake your kid up. You're trying to bring them back to the right path. And that's the same as what is going on here. Now one last part. Verses 12 and 13 say... It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside of the church. Bottom line, this whole chapter, you can't get around the word judge. And immediately people say something like this. There's a verse that almost everybody knows of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 1. What does it say? Do not judge others or you will be judged. And so they go, okay, what am I supposed to do here? Paul's saying, judge. Jesus is saying, don't judge. Jesus is God. Paul was created by Jesus. Maybe I'm going to ignore Paul and go with Jesus, and I'm not going to judge. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what he's saying at all. He goes on to say, um, you'll be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you'll be judged. And then he goes on with with this great passage where he basically says, you know, the problem some of you folks have, you walk around and you see a little speck of dust in your friend's eye. And you want to pick that speck of dust out. And you're there scraping away, scraping away, picking at their dust. But you've got a tree growing out of your head. I mean, you've got this nasty old log just growing out of your head. And there you are reaching as far. No, I'll, I'll get it for you, really. Hold on, hold on. And Jesus says, it might be good to get the tree out of your head first. It might be good to get that thing out of your head before you go picking. And what is he? I mean, look at the way he ends. He says, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in another person's eye. He's not saying we have to be perfect in order to help other people. But he is saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be so hypocritical. A lot of people are really good at pointing out other people's specks because it helps them to avoid this. It helps them to forget about the log they have in their own eye. Jesus was not saying that we should never point out to someone else the error of their ways. In fact, there's another part in the Bible that that Jesus says, by their fruit you will know them. Well, how do you do that? By judging. You have to make a judgment. You have to make a judgment, but don't be judgmental. There's a difference between having discernment and, on the other hand, being, being a judgmental person. We need to know the difference between the two. 
You know, in this whole chapter, chapter 5, I can't help but be brought back again and again to this, to this tagline that we use under our name. Southfield Church, simply life-changing. And we, didn't, we didn't come up with those words because, you know, they, they seem to fit well with Southfield or the kind of, wow, they slip off the tongue or isn't that a neat little, found that on the internet. Ooh, that, look, the font is great, something like that. We chose those two words because it says everything we're about. We really believe the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a transformation station. That spiritual malpractice has been, has been uh, administered. If a person can be in a church for 10 years and never, ever, 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 ever change, we should be becoming more and more and more like Jesus all the time. So the question we might ask is, um, what do we do to ever keep from having to do 1 Corinthians chapter 5? It's there, like I said, is control all to lead, the last result, last resort. But what do we do to keep from having to do that without disobeying the Bible? Here are a few things we need to do if we're helping people to be transformed. First, we have to consistently make our convictions clear. We have to say, we believe the Bible. And we need to make clear what we believe about what the Bible has to say. So it's important that we do that as a church publicly. And it's important that we do that with each other. That we're clear about what biblical convictions are. That we, don't, that we don't skirt away from the tough things that are talked about in the Bible. Secondly, we need to take sin seriously. And again, I don't mean in that we're taking everybody else's sin seriously. We need to take our own sin seriously. We need to look and say, this is something that God wants to eradicate from my life. And I'm going to cooperate with the Spirit in seeing that sin diminish in my lifetime. The third, and this is maybe the most important, we need to nurture accountable relationships and conversations. Church isn't a place that you're supposed to come attend a service and walk away. That's not church. Church is the fellowship. Church is the doing life together. It's the meal together, not just eating hamburgers, but sharing life together. And as we're sharing life together, we get the chance. We have proximity and permission. We're close enough to each other, and we have the permission to enter into each other's lives and have sometimes tough conversations. Now, understand this. If we're going to do all that, you need to get ready to be a little messy. It never, it never goes off perfectly, cleanly, beautifully, and you need to be ready to be misunderstood. I can't think of too many times in my life that I talked to somebody about something they were doing and they looked at me and said, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I've just been waiting for you to point that out. Most people do what I do. Who are you? Uh, who are, what? Get out of my face. Why, you hypocrite. How dare you point out blah, blah, blah. And we do that. And, and, and the hard part is we've got we to give the person enough time to get over their defensiveness and realize we really do love them. God really does love them, and we want what's best for them. We're not, we don't want to be that dentist that looks at it like a mouthful of cavities and says, well, I know you don't like metal stuff on your teeth. We need to say, you want to be better. That's why you're here, and we want to help. You see, when it comes down to it, those aren't just words to me, simply life-changing. They're not just words. It's about what we are. You know, the, the, we've said for a long time, as a lot of churches have said, come as you are. I believe that with all my heart. You don't get cleaned up before you come to God. You come as you are. But don't leave off the last part and be changed. 
Come as you are, but be changed. We should be in a constant, perpetual state of growth. It doesn't always happen like this. Sometimes it you know, looks more like an EKG, but it should be going up. We should be doing better and better and growing more and more all the time. The, the bottom line is truthful that if I weren't challenging you to change, I would be ignoring what the Bible has to say. I really believe that if I love you, I'm going to point out this is how God says we're supposed to live. And it was an unloving act to say, hey, I just want you to be happy. I want you to like the experience at the service. So we're just going to leave, leave you with a mouthful of cavities. That does nobody any favors at all. So we will be moving to chapter 6 next week. If you want to, go ahead and read it in advance. You can be prepared and ready to go. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I pray that we'll never have to do it. I pray that we would take the actions that are necessary far before that so that control alt delete would never have to happen in a relationship. And that there would be a spirit of openness to correction, that, that, we, would, that we would be willing to listen and that we would be willing to be changed and become, become more like Jesus. Give us that openness uh, to you and to each other and to your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before our servers come this morning, uh, we're gonna, we've, been, we've been experimenting with about uh, 35 different ways to do communion. This is what we're landing on, okay? So we've got these great trays, and on the outside, there's juice. And on the center, there's a place for you to be able to have bread. And for a while, we moved away from using it that way because people were fumbling around. They grabbed their bread, they grabbed their cup, and they were like, how do I do all this, especially if you had a younger kid? So then we went to the two-cup method. And the two-cup method was great, except for those of you that would pinch the bottom cup too hard and not be able to get the top cup out. And suddenly, what's supposed to be this moving spiritual experience is becoming a breaking cup. So that wasn't working. So here's where we're going instead. I wish Paul would have explained where to buy communion supplies. But anyway... (laughs) I think that this symbol is just going to really help us in our experience of communion. That tray comes and the bread is in the middle. I want you to go ahead and take that bread and put it in your mouth immediately. And that symbolizes your individual relationship with God. That's you and God. Okay? But then take the cup, and we're going to take the cup, and we're going to hold it together and take it together at the end. Because Christianity isn't a just Jesus and me experience. It's an us experience. It's about us. And part of the reason that we have trouble with 1 Corinthians 5 is because we've forgotten about the us part of the Bible. It's all about me. It's not all about me. So take the bread and then hold the cup. Now let me say a couple other things on this. This is really getting kind of fun. Some of you like to do these pressure tests with your cup. I know. I sit there and I hear a click and then immediately. Anytime there's a click, there are four more clicks. Because people go, I wonder how hard you have to squeeze this thing for it to break. Uh, It's plastic, it breaks. It's full of juice. This will be kind of like shoplifting. Suddenly you will have ink all over yourself and everybody will know who the cup breaker was this morning. So if you're holding your cup, don't squeeze it too hard or it might shatter. If you are terrified that that might happen, just take the juice and enjoy it, okay? I hope I haven't made this into a completely irreverent experience. This is supposed to be about Jesus and loving him, but uh, whatever. Let's take communion.
He said, this is the blood of the new covenant given for you. 
Every time you drink this, remember me. Church, let's drink together. We're grateful, Jesus, for your sacrifice for our sins. We're not just trying to become better on our own. This isn't a a massive self-help program. We realize, God, that your spirit empowers us to be different, empowers us to be changed. And God, today I pray that we would, we would experience that power and that desire that says, even if I'm trapped in something right now, even if I've been involved in an area of sin that I know is wrong, I'm ready to move out of it. I'm ready to change. I'm ready to look for help, people that will help me to get to the other side of this. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Servers will come now and collect the offering. You put your offering envelope in there as well as your card. And as they do, I have a couple things to share with you. We already mentioned the fact that we've, we've moved into March. And uh, the end of March, March 31st, this year is Easter. So you have a whole month now to kind of focus on an idea. There are a lot of people who may not have great openness to coming to church the rest of the year, but there's something about Christmas and Easter and sometimes Mother's Day that they say, yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. I, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so what I'd encourage you to do, if there's someone you've been thinking about, someone you've been thinking, hey, I'd sure love to invite them to come and experience Southfield, start now, early in this month, just praying about it praying for the person, for praying for opportunities to be able to have a, a conversation with them about that. And then beyond that, sometime later in the month, go ahead and extend the invitation to them. They may surprise you and say yes. Uh, they may also say, no thanks. And you know what? That's okay. You did your part. You extended the offer. And that's what matters. We need to be faithful in extending offers to life change. After that, it's up to the person as to whether or not they're going to do that. So just kind of have that in your mind now and and be ready uh, come the end of the month to bring your friends for a a great Easter service. Now, the beginning of the month, March 10th, I hope your birthday is now March 10th, because this year is the day that people dread. March 10th is the day that the clocks change. Fortunately for most of us, that happens automatically these days. I can admit, I still don't trust my clock. I know that if I'm late, you'll all know. So uh, I'm kind of up all night long looking to see if it changed. But make sure next week you go ahead and push your clock forward an hour. You'll be glad come evening. The sun will be out and you'll be happy and it'll be wonderful. And after a week, you'll feel normal again. But in the meantime, it is quite clear that there was not a a pastor involved in this decision because he never would have done it going into Sunday morning. So we'll go buy some extra octane this week, throw it in the coffee, and you'll just be jittery and ready to worship. All right, let's stand and close our time together in singing.
Have a great day and we'll see you next Sunday.